On this week's edition of New York Now, a huge change for New York's food and farming industry. Then, new challenges for the new school year, including with safety. And later, a special look at the power of school boards. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. A huge decision on the future of New York's food and farming industry and its workers is now in the hands of the Hochul administration. A state wage board finally issued a report this week recommending that farm workers in New York earn overtime pay after 40 hours instead of the current 60 hours. And now a final decision will be up to the State Department of Labor, which has until late October to either accept or reject the wage board's recommendation. If it's accepted, the change would be phased in over the next decade. Brenda McDuffie, the chair of the three-member board, labeled that as a compromise between both sides. We believe that this decision protects the right of farm laborers while taking in account the needs of farmers. But farmers do not see it that way. They say they cannot afford to pay more in overtime and won't be able to in 10 years either. And they're worried that if they have to cut workers to 40 hours a week, some might look for work in other states where they might get more hours. David Fisher, the current head of the New York Farm Bureau, served on the wage board as well and was the sole vote against a lower overtime threshold. Um, I voted to oppose the wage board report on the overtime threshold because it's not a full and accurate depiction of the data and testimony gathered during the two year long process. This includes lack of significant economic data, as well as detailed testimony from farmers, farm workers, and egg experts. Workers' rights groups and union advocates disagree and see it as a human rights issue. They say that many workers don't want to work more than 40 hours, and that if they do, they want overtime to do it. They also point to a new tax credit passed in this year's state budget that's promised to reimburse farmers for new overtime costs. Emma Kreitchi is from the Workers' Justice Center of New York. With this tax credit, employers are able to employ workers up to 60 hours, and any additional cost to them will be absorbed by taxpayers. So I don't see how this is a risk um, in terms of potential further reduction in work hours. And it looks like the fight over this issue is far from over. Joe Spector from Politico is with me now in studio. Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks, Dan. So do we have any indication about the decision that's coming from the Department of Labor on this, wh where they're leaning? Well, okay, so this is, um, so let's uh, let's uh, go backwards, right? So in 2019, they passed this law mm -hmm. that would create this board uh, under the Cuomo administration, and now the report that recommends going to 40 hours uh, when you get overtime, and again, we should note, this is not, this does, you don't just snap your fingers and it starts tomorrow. This right. is over a decade. Right. And the first uh, installation of that would be to drop it uh, four hours uh, by 2024. Yes. So, um, and then you sort of, and it's four um, hours every other year yeah. until 2032. So we're a long way. So we come back in a decade, Dan. We could talk about <laughs> it, the yeah. final implementation of this, uh, <laughs> of this piece. But, uh, you know, the board votes two to one uh, to support the recommendations of their board. And now it goes to uh, Roberta Reardon, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the labor commissioner, who is an appointee of the governor. 
And, you know, I think the, the key signal in all of this was in January and then obviously in the state budget when uh, they, the budget from Hochul included a variety of uh, subsidies, tax breaks to help farmers if and when this goes forward. So by putting that all in place, and you read it in the report, uh, the, the rationale for moving forward was, one, they think it's important uh, to do to sort of level the playing field between farm workers and other seasonal workers. So the argument was in part, if you work in the tourism industry or if you work in the construction industry and you might be a seasonal worker, you get overtime after 40 hours. Why shouldn't farm workers get the same? So that, that was one of the key arguments. But nonetheless, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you'd be surprised if you did this. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if, so they have the recommendation that's going to the labor commissioner. She can uh, accept or reject it. I'm assuming the governor is going to get involved in some way. What I, I really want to nail down with our audience is that Roberta Rear and the labor commissioner is not an independent body. She is a part of the governor's cabinet. So I have to assume she would make this decision in consultation with the governor. And I'm wondering if the governor strikes some deal or something to include something in next year's budget where she says, I'm going to accept this recommendation, but then we do something else to help farmers. Do you think that might be? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. You know, I think, you know, you. so let's put this in the context of the election, right? And, you know, we, right. we, yes. we, we, were, we were talking about the... Um, uh, we were talking before we got out of the air about the, about the timeline of this. So, you know, I think we were both English majors probably more than math. But if you do the math, <laughs> right, you, uh, you back this up. So there's 45 days from when they got the report, uh, when, when the labor commissioner got the report. So that brings us to October 21st. Yes. And the, the election's November 8th. Yeah. So, okay, so if you play that out, Sounds like we're going to have a, re a recommendation on this before the election. And um, as you've seen, Republicans uh, really deride the recommendations on this and saying how it's going to hurt farmers uh, having to go to 40 hours a week. They're already struggling. Uh, now you're going to put this additional burden on them, even though it's stretched out over a decade. I mean, they are uh, concerned about the impact on their labor costs. So, yeah, interesting that this would happen um, prior to November 8th. I mean, you just, you've been around, you know, we've both been around long enough to know that some controversial decisions all of a sudden, uh, you know, the, you don't hear about it until the end of November December. November Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> exactly, the next day. So uh, so in this case, yeah, we're going to have uh, a decision on this uh, before the election, and it'll certainly be a hot-button issue going into the final weeks and days of the campaign. But, yeah, to your point, yeah, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be surprising to see if there was some additional help for farmers, uh, you know, maybe there's some other changes that could be made that could assuage some of the concerns that was raised by uh, the head of the Farm Bureau who was on the on the panel and who was the one no vote, you know, uh, some of the concerns are uh, that not only is it going to raise costs, but, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for them. One of, the, one of the things that they noted was like, okay, maybe other industries get overtime after 40 hours, but, you know, you're not taking into account some of the other things that we provide. They often provide housing, food, uh, other uh, things that help the farm workers, who are, who are largely uh, minorities, uh, and in most cases uh, Latino, uh, help them on the farms. But, you know, then the supporters will say, 
yeah, but they should get paid overtime after 40 right. hours a week. For, for them, I think it's a human rights issue more than anything. For 100%. And a workers' rights issue. So uh, we are out of time, unfortunately. I, I covered this extensively, and I could talk about it for a full hour. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting issue. And, you know, you got to remember, right, New York is one of the largest agricultural states in the country, you know, uh, whether it's uh, dairy farms or, uh, you know, milk apples. So, you know, it's a big it's a big industry and it's a big decision. It is. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. Joe Spector from Politico, thank you so much. All right, moving on now to the new school year. After a long, hot summer, class is now back in session and school districts are adjusting to a new normal or something like it. But at the same time, they're also dealing with a different problem, one that's not so new. After 21 people were killed at the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, in May, many schools are reevaluating how to keep students safe. And in New York, where an 18-year-old shot and killed 10 people in Buffalo, also in May, those discussions hit close to home. So teachers are heading back to class this year with a lot on their mind and a tough road ahead. For more on that, I spoke this week with Andy Pallotta, president of New York State United Teachers, the state's largest teachers union. Andy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So it has been a tough few years for teachers. I mean, between COVID, I mean, COVID is the main headline for teachers over the past couple of years. But then we saw in the spring this awful shooting at the Uvalde School District in Texas. And that has just brought up a lot of feelings of unease in schools. From the teacher perspective, do you see schools as a safe space right now? Well, I think when I speak with teachers from around the state, they tell me about their anxiety, their fear, and for some it might be what happened in Uvalde, it might be what's happening right now in their school building. Mm. So there's all different types of issues that are coming to the surface right now around the state. You know, in terms of a school shooting, do you think schools in New York are prepared enough for that possibility? We, we, have, we have prepared for this before, and obviously this is not a new thing. I think that schools are preparing. I think this is a process. I think we have to face reality that things can happen anywhere at any time. So the more we put into this to keep schools a safe haven for children, for parents, and for educators, the better off we'll be. You know, we're also having this problem in schools right now where, uh, according to you and others, there have been a, an uptick in violent incidents in school districts. We're looking at, obviously, last school year because you didn't have school over the summer. First, do we know why that is? Is it? I can imagine being a kid at this time, going through so much and, you know, acting out. But do we know why there's more violence in schools right now? Well, I think coming through COVID, they've had this weird, odd experience of life in general and yeah. then an education experience of being remote, having an educator, a teacher remote, and then coming back and having to wear a mask and uh, dealing with all of the issues of um, not having the normalcy that mm. they had before. So some, some children deal with it better than others, but we know that there are unmet needs that students are dealing with. So we want to be able to have the counseling, the staffing in place to actually meet those needs. How do we do that? Does, is, does that just mean more funding? Does it mean setting up that infrastructure? What is it gonna take to get to these kids that are experiencing these, you know, for lack of a better term, crises in their lives? Right, and there's, there's more now than there used to be. Yeah. And we hear that over and over from educators around the state. So staffing, having the appropriate levels of staffing when it comes to uh, 
educators, teachers in the classroom, also um, psychologists, social workers, mental health uh, providers that would be able to intercede and get into um, the middle of the problem. What is really going on here? Why are we acting out in such a way? Maybe we can um, intervene before issues come to the surface. So funding, always. There's always <laughs> a need for funding and more funding. We had a very good budget last year, but obviously we want to see more money going into things like restorative justice um, initiatives and things to that nature where we can intervene, we can have the community involved and work together to bring answers to all of these problems. One problem that you're facing right now that's related to staffing is this teacher shortage. I mean, it's a, it's a national problem, but you're dealing with it here in New York. What do we do about it? I mean, that's, that's one of those problems where I don't know if it's funding. I don't know if it's that there's not enough people in the pipeline to become teachers. What do you see as the solution? You have definitely hit on the two problems. Well, there's, that's good. We're going the right direction. There's not enough uh, <laughs> folks going into education. In the SUNY system, it's down by 50%. Wow. So where we had so many more people going into the profession years ago, we have seen a steady decline over the years, even pre-COVID. So we have something at NYSET, the Take a Look at Teaching initiative, to grow your own. Have your students think about teaching. It is a great profession. We do change lives. We make the world a better place. So encouraging folks to get into it. Um, there's been a certain amount of disrespect for educators over the years. Yes. And it's come from uh, politicians. It's come from some policymakers. So now we have to make up for that, showing them the respect uh, for the profession and what they do, what they bring every day. It seems like politics is getting into the classroom more and more. I mean, not every classroom, but it feels like the consensus in the country is that there is, there's politics in the classroom where there doesn't need to be. I don't think that's the case in a lot of classrooms, but how, how do you see this from the teacher perspective? How do we bring classrooms back to being just the safe space for students to be learning and not a place for people to bring opinions in, I guess? Right. And what we're trying to do is make sure that it is a safe place for yeah. every student. That is our goal. And we, when we say safe, we mean health-wise, right, uh, safety, and we also mean uh, emotionally in every single way that a student would feel that they're not being uh, given someone's opinions on every single um, aspect of life, but that they can enjoy being with their um, friends and um, getting to know the world as a bigger place, getting to know how people act and how people live in different places around the world and around this country, mm. and, and feel that they can explore and say, this is what this is all about. Oh, okay. So we can be friends. We can be in a safe place. We can share ideas. So I, I think that that is where we are right now. At the same time, you have this unique situation caused by the pandemic of students who have some learning gaps because maybe remote learning wasn't the most effective for them personally or they just fell behind for other reasons. How much of a challenge do you see that for teachers moving forward? I have to assume it would be a, a big task for somebody who, let's say, for example, somebody's teaching seventh grade, but uh, the student is coming from sixth grade and maybe didn't get the learning that they needed to advance on. How are teachers addressing that, and how is that going to affect them? Right. Well, th the learning gap is a real thing, right? And um, different students have been affected differently by, by the pandemic and remote learning. Some were able to go right through, 
You know, they had everything they needed, the computer, the internet uh, connection. Some didn't have that at all. Mm. And our members delivered uh, manila folders by bus to students' houses during the height of the pandemic. And then they would be collected and brought back. So everyone had a very different experience. Some had no internet connection at all. Some educators had no internet connection. They had to go to the school and use the Wi-Fi. Right. So everybody's had a, a different experience with this. Can we make up for lost time? Yes. Does it take resources? Most definitely. And we believe that with those resources, we can make up for that, the, any gap that there is. But we also have to look forward and say, what was missing? Hmm. Not that we ever want to go through this again, but what could we do that would make it better and more equal around the state for students, whether they are urban, suburban, or rural, that they would have the same access to the internet, be able to um, inter interact with their educators in such a way that there would be less of a gap. And I think that's something that we will be looking at for years to come, just studying how the pandemic affected you know, schools, every aspect of society. But we are out of time. Andy Pilata from NYSIT, thank you so much. Thank you. And staying now with schools, teachers and parents, for that matter, are really only one part of this equation. There's another part of school districts that usually doesn't get a lot of attention, but has power over everything, from staffing to curriculum to extracurriculars and a lot more. That's the school board. And this week, we're going to tell you all about it in this story from producer Catherine Rafferty and me. Take a look. The new school year is finally here. And while teachers and students get settled in, the state's school boards are adapting to a new normal. It's the first full school year since before the pandemic, without major COVID rules like masks and remote learning. That's to align the state with guidance from the CDC. Governor Kathy Hochul announced the change in August. But the big news is uh, no more quarantining, no more tests to stay. And the days of sending an entire classroom home because one person was symptomatic or test positive, those days are over. About three quarters of the state's school districts plan to use federal COVID relief funding this year to deal with the pandemic's impact on students with a focus on gaps in learning. That's according to an analysis from the New York State School Boards Association and decisions on how to use that funding to address issues caused by the pandemic will be made by local school boards. But what exactly is a school board, and what do they do? It's something that voters choose, but they usually don't get a lot of attention. In a nutshell, local school boards govern their school system. They put together the school's budget, oversee curriculum, manage the superintendent, and more. David Albert is from the New York State School Boards Association. It is the most fundamental basic form of democracy that we have. And in many cases, school boards, decisions that they make will impact people more than decisions made in Washington or here in Albany because they're so local. And recently, school boards have been in the news a lot across the country. That's been fueled in part by the pandemic and politics. Suddenly, school boards became a space for polarization and disagreement. Parents and community members started flooding public meetings, voicing their thoughts on COVID rules like masks and curriculum related to race and the LGBTQ plus community. 
But despite that tension, there's a lot to love about school boards, says Sarah Rogerson. She's vice president of a local school board in Schenectady County and also leads the Justice Center at Albany Law School. I love that Board of Education members are elected in a nonpartisan election. I love that because from the jump, you're talking about joining a team uh, where the focus is not on political affiliation, but on the district itself. It's all volunteer. It's unpaid because Board of Ed members aren't supposed to represent any particular contingency, right? It's the whole district, including people who don't have children, but who pay taxes in the district, employees, administration. Our job isn't to pick and choose among the competing priorities there, but to make sure that everybody has a voice so that we can make the most informed decision. And there are now extra layers to all that work coming out of the pandemic. For Rogerson, her school board is focused on the student experience. It's not going to be a typical school year. It's going to be our first closer to typical school year post-pandemic, which means a, a huge focus on mental health and well-being, climate in the schools, how adults set examples for children coming out of a very difficult global situation. And certainly, of course, the rise in the incidence of mass shootings have resulted in a related issue of security of the school grounds, security of our students, and security of, of our employees. At Rogerson School Board in Schenectady County, they elect student representatives to serve on their board. They report on the day-to-day -day experiences of students in the district and offer their perspective on board policies. Vera Amerbeckian is a senior serving a second year as student rep to the board. Anina Knezvic is a junior who will begin service this year. They had firsthand experience of the needs of students during the pandemic. So classes were shortened and also obviously a lot of people were online so they didn't get like the full spectrum of like learning in a classroom and learning all the topics that we normally would. I think it'll be a couple years before we finally, I guess, balance out and you would have learned everything last year to be able to move on to new information this year. Also, summer slide, it always happens, but in pandemic years, it's been worse. I think board meetings themselves are gonna look different because a lot of the privilege of the floor speakers that we've had during the pandemic was regarding certain vaccination mandates or mask mandates, so I know that maybe those focuses will shift. I'm just excited for school to start back up because as I mentioned, like it was kind of down in the dumps during the COVID, well, more severe COVID times. And so I'm excited just to see a lot of my friends and to socialize again. And I'm really excited to start the new position on the board. Some describe this school year as a sort of new normal. And in some ways, it is. But Tabitha Wilson, a member of the school board in the city of Albany, doesn't see it that way. I love to say that we are not going back to normal <laughs> because normal had its, you know, institutional things that did not work for everybody um, as a society, at least. So we are moving forward with what feels most normal for people. I think some folks will show up and wear masks at their discretion, um, you know, because there are still lingering aspects of the pandemic. And we, of course, still monitor, um, you know, whether there's cases and things of that nature. And we, of course, still have all the protocols, but very much so opening school like a time you or I would remember, like back to school, there'll be activities, there'll be athletics, there'll be after school, there'll be in-person aspects, but we're still being mindful of the legacy impact of COVID. More importantly, the 
things that you can't physically identify where it's like the social emotional aspect that of a, a generation who basically went through three years of this that was pr probably their whole middle school career or the most of their high school career. And on top of all that, school boards are dealing with a statewide teacher shortage. It's a national issue, but staffing is having a huge impact on districts in New York without a clear solution. It was already a problem before COVID, but Albert from the School Boards Association says the pandemic only made it worse. In 2020 and 2021, a lot of teachers retired, um, probably a little more than normal, not off the charts, but higher than normal. At the same time, it's hard to find good qualified people to fill some of these roles. I think the biggest challenge, quite honestly, with schools is going to be bus drivers in terms of hiring. This is something that actually precedes the pandemic. Part of that ties into funding, which determines a lot of what school boards are able to do in terms of a budget. And while a lot of school funding comes from the local community in the form of taxes, a pretty significant chunk is from the state. That money's decided in the state budget which is passed in Albany each year in the spring. The state legislature approved a record amount of state aid for schools this year at $31.2 billion. And Albert from the State School Boards Association is hoping for another boost in next year's budget. You've actually seen the, the foundation aid, which is the base kind of formula for schools. It's, it's the primary funding mechanism for public education in New York State. And we have seen in the last two years, a full funding of that, uh, of that formula. In many years, it was actually truncated. They didn't let it run as it, as it should have. We have seen that funding formula run the way it is intended to run the last couple of years. So that's great. So that's a huge priority for us. In the meantime, school boards will continue their work at the local level. That involves input from the public. And that doesn't always mean speaking out. Getting involved can look like attending a meeting and just listening or joining a committee too. And if that's not enough, there's always a chance for change. School board elections happen in May when voters decide the school budget. And whether you're running for school board or casting your vote, Albert says you can play a big role in making a difference. But despite all of that, school board members will tell you they're happy to do it. Here's Wilson from Albany County again. There's so many opportunities to be engaged that I feel like I underwent a transformation in a very short period of time about how to be civically engaged. And I wanted that for everybody else too. So I would like to stay involved in every capacity possible, <laughs> as long as possible. I feel like it's a lifelong thing. It's a lifelong learning process, absolutely. Now the one place without an elected school board is New York City, where the mayor has total control over schools. But that is a story for another time. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.